The End of the Present World and the Mysteries of the Future Life by Father Charles Armenjean Published in 1881 First Conference The End of the World The Signs Which Will Proceed and the Circumstances Which Will Accompany It Veniet dies domini sicut fur, in quoceli magno impetu transient. But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief, in which the heavens shall pass away with great violence. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 St. Paul teaches us that the present world is an immense laboratory where all nature is in ferment and labor until the day when, freed from all bondage and corruption, it will blossom out into a radiant and renewed order. Man himself in his course here below is no more than a traveler sailing across the fluctuating tempestuous sea of time, and the earth which bears him is but the boat destined to guide him towards the land of immortal and unending life. Nations too, like individuals, are destined one day to disappear. The story of mankind would be no more than an inexplicable drama, a series of confused, aimless, isolated facts, if, sooner or later, it did not have its appointed time and climax. In the present natural order, everything with the beginning is destined to end. A continuous chain must have a link at both ends, not just one. The present world, precisely because it was created, necessarily tends towards its conclusion and end. How will that great transformation be effected? What will be the conditions and the new form of our earth when, after it has been destroyed and completely transfigured by fire, it will no longer be watered by the sweat of man, and has ceased to be the troubled, blood-stained arena of our strife and passions? We shall speak of this presently. In this first talk, our aim will be to recall the testimony of Holy Scripture, and particularly that of today's Gospel, which assure us that, after a longish period of centuries, the visible order of things on earth will give way to a new and permanent order and the changing era of time will be replaced by the era of stability and repose. As we broach this delicate and difficult subject, one of the most important that can be treated in Christian preaching, since it touches upon the present and future circumstances of our country and our destinies, it seems right to us to point out that we shall steer clear of every perilous opinion, relying neither upon dubious revelations nor apocryphal prophecies, and making no assertion which is not justified by the doctrine of the sacred books, or permitted by the authentic teaching of the fathers and of tradition. In the first four conferences, we shall recall in turn, first, what the premonitory signs and indications of the end of the times are to be, secondly, what will be the marks and nature of the persecution by this man of sin announced by the Apostle as the precursor of the final coming of the Son of God, thirdly, what will be the circumstances of the resurrection and judgment, finally, what will be the place of immortal life and the state of the world after the resurrection. Today, in our commentary on sacred scripture, and particularly on the 24th chapter of St. Matthew, we shall seek to resolve these three fundamental questions. First, is the doctrine of the end of the times an indubitable doctrine founded on reason and in harmony with the facts of present-day science? Secondly, may we deduce from the words of Christ whether the end of the times is near or remote? Thirdly, by what means will this final cataclysm, this great crowning change, come about? In the face of these formidable problems which defy the light and grasp of human understanding, our voice is hesitant and can only stammer. May the Spirit of God enlighten our mind and place on our lips words of truth, strength, wisdom, and discretion. 1. The materialistic, atheistic science of our century, the sort which is propagated in magazines, taught from most official rostrums and given credence by the mainstream of present-day anti-Christian opinion, 
persists in regarding the order and perfection of the universe merely as the result of chance. It affirms that matter is eternal. Denying creation, it could not logically admit that the world can have an end. According to this false science, the present universe will always subsist, or if it becomes progressively better, this will be solely through the effect of man's genius, the increasing impulse given to the arts and industrial achievements, the varied combination and play of fluids and elements, decomposing and reconstituting themselves to give birth to new forms. In short, by the application and activation of the innumerable and still unknown forces which nature conceals in her bosom, forces which by themselves are capable of surging forward into limitless and indefinite growth. And just as the worm, in perfecting itself, turned into a quadruped, from quadruped to two-footed creature, from two-footed creature to man, in the same way, man, with the aid of science, will one day attain the pinnacle of his sovereignty. He will conquer time and space, make himself wings in order to propel himself towards the stars, and explore the wonders of the constellations. In the eyes of atheistic science, paradise and eternal life, as conceived by Christians, are an allegory and a myth. Progress is the last end, the law and foundation of the life of man, the final point and aim where all his thoughts and aspirations should converge. Let man courageously cast aside the bonds and darkness of superstition and of oppressive outdated beliefs. Let him have faith in himself alone, and, in a more or less proximate future, he will be invested with an unlimited, unrestrained kingship over the elements and creation. Nature, completely subdued by his genius, will then open like the horn of plenty upon a new humanity, pouring forth the fullness of desirable goods. And if the present generations fail to attain this ideal of bliss, they may take comfort from the prospect that it will be the attribute of some more distant descendants, and all the more glorious for these, in that they will have acquired them independently and without the assistance of God, and will be solely the result of their own perseverance, efforts, and ingenuity. Need I say that these fantasies, these crass, nonsensical theories, are contradicted by reason and the common assent of all nations? They are contradicted by Christian reason. If, in fact, as our Christian faith and conviction tell us, temporal life had its principle and beginning in God, it must also have in God its consummation and destiny. Man was created to know, love, and serve God. And if he did not succeed one day in possessing him and being irrevocably united with him, the Creator's plan, devoid of any rational end, would be no more than a strange aberration. Mankind, thwarted in its love, its tendencies and its aspirations, would become another Sisyphus, or a sort of roulette ball, dancing in the air and condemned to spin forever on the wheel of fate's blind necessity. What place would there be for justice, morality, the security of families and of public authority, in a system where everything was in a state of disorder and contradiction, where the ideal never became reality, good was never separated from evil, and no standard existed by which to decide the importance of moral living and the true sanction of human acts? History, a skeptical author of our time has said, is the judge of peoples, and her judgment, which continues throughout the ages, renders the last judgment pointless and superfluous. Our reply will be that the judgment of history is not a public judgment, whereas the evil is public and rises up with an arrogance which is a scandal to men and a constant outrage against God. The judgment of history remains incomplete because every good or bad act is a mainspring of good or evil, a seed of life or death, all the fruits and results of which its author could neither feel nor foresee. That is why, if the universal judgment had not been foretold to us, it would be our duty to demand it, to insist on it as a necessary consequence as the final enactment of that divine providence which guides the movement of history throughout the ages, and as a final measure to complete his work and place his seal on it. This universal judgment is but the last scene of the universal drama, the general fulfillment of all the partial judgments emanating from God's justice. It is only on this understanding that history becomes clear and comprehensible, that we shall see it not as the confused mind and eyes of man imagine it to be, but as it really is, like a book open to every eye.
A great orator of our time has said, History is not over, it will begin in the Valley of Josephat. Christian reason and the common assent of all nations thus bear witness that the world must end and that there will be a new order. This truth is also in conformity with science and observed facts. It is a recognized principle and a general law of nature that everything which is subject to movement or decomposition, everything consumed by time or limited in extent, is liable to wear out in age and, in the end, disappears and perishes. Science teaches us that no vital force or created agent has the power to deploy its energy beyond a limited duration, and that by virtue of the creative law, the field of its activity is restricted within a given sphere, the boundary of which cannot be crossed. The most perfect and soundly built organisms could not be made to function indefinitely. Not only living beings such as animals and plants, but even minerals are subject to opposing forces of affinity or repulsion, and tend continuously to separate in order to form new groupings. Thus the hardest rocks and granite undergo corrosion and weathering, which, sooner or later, will bring them tumbling down. Stars are seen to extinguish and vanish in the firmament. Every movement, even that of the heavens, tends to become slower. Eminent astronomers have detected, in the sun and the stars, losses of heat and light, admittedly imperceptible, which nevertheless will not fail, after the passage of many centuries, to have a disastrous effect on our climate and seasons. Be that as it may, it is certain that our earth no longer possesses the same fecundity or vegetative strength which it had in the first ages of the human race. Just as the world had its youth, so there will come a time when the world will have its twilight, when it will hasten toward its evening and decline. These are truths of observation and common sense which reason grasps easily, but Christianity alone has succeeded in demonstrating their certainty and excellence. It is in this respect, a Protestant thinker has said, that Christian doctrine is quite distinct from philosophic doctrines. It affirms that a new existence awaits man after this life. An absolute requirement for the fulfillment of that existence is that nature, which has become obscure and impenetrable to man, should be explained and clarified in some future state, which will prove the harmony between visible and invisible things, the transient and the everlasting, matter and spirit. Only in that future, only with such an end to human existence, can the conscience of man find repose. For this hope we are indebted to Christ, whose promise permits us to expect, after the final crisis, a new earth and new heavens. So the world will have an end. But is this end remote or near? That is a serious, exciting question, no less worthy of reflection by Christian souls. Holy Scripture on this point does not leave us completely in the dark. Certainly, speaking of the exact date, Jesus Christ says, But of that day and hour no one knoweth, no, not the angels of heaven, but the Father alone. On the other hand, he consented to give definite signs and indications, intended to let us know that the fulfillment of the prophecies is close, and that the world is nearing its end. Jesus Christ has proceeded, in respect of mankind considered as a whole, in the same way as with individuals. Thus our death is certain, but the hour is unknown to us. None of us can say whether he will be living a week or a day from now, and I who am speaking to you do not know whether I shall complete the talk which I have begun. But if we can be taken by surprise at any time, there are, nevertheless, signs which attest that our final hour is imminent, and that we should be laboring under a crass illusion if we imagined that we had a long stretch of life still awaited here below. Our Lord tells us, From the fig tree learn a parable. When the branch thereof is now tender and the leaves come forth, you know that the summer is nigh. So you also, when you shall see all these things, wars, famines, earthquakes, know ye that it is nigh, even at the doors. As a matter of fact, these public calamities and disturbances, and the alterations in the elements and in the normal course of the seasons, which will mark the final coming of the Son of God, are vague, indefinite signs. They have appeared, with greater or lesser intensity, in every ill-fated period of human history, and in all periods of crisis and religious disorder. At the time of the Maccabees, signs were already seen in the sky. 
For forty days the whole city of Jerusalem observed men on horseback in the air, clad in gold brocade and armed with lances, like cavalry units. The horses, drawn up in squadrons, charged one another. The men seemed to be armed with javelins and drawn swords. Their weapons were made of gold, and their helmets and breastplates were dazzling. The terror-stricken people prayed fervently to God, in order that these omens might turn to their deliverance, and not to their confusion and ruin. During the siege of Jerusalem, under Titus, the Holy of Holies and the temple were shaken by mysterious movements. Strange noises were heard coming from them, and voices from invisible beings cried out, Let us depart hence, let us depart hence. A grand rabbi, dumbfounded by these terrifying supernatural manifestations, exclaimed, O temple, why are you troubled, and why do you frighten yourself? Accordingly, in order not to give rise to any misunderstanding or any false interpretation, Christ tells us that the afflictions and prodigies of nature, which will mark the latter ages of mankind, are only the prelude and beginning of still greater sorrows. Hec autem omnia initia sunt dolorum. All these, however, are the beginning of sorrows. Thus no firm conclusion can be drawn from the present disasters and revolutions, or the great religious or social cataclysms of which Europe and the world are currently the scene regarding the end of times. The signs today are the same signs which occurred in ancient times, and experience shows that they are insufficient to prove the proximity of the judgment. Nevertheless, it is worth bearing in mind that Christ, in his prophecy, Matthew 24, mingles together in a single scene the signs relating to the end of the world and those relating to the destruction of Jerusalem. He does so first because of the analogy between the two events. Secondly, because in God there is no distinction or succession in time. The impending events and those more remote are clearly present to his mind, and he sees them as if they had occurred at the same moment. Moreover, our Lord Jesus Christ knew that the apostles, before they were enlightened by the Holy Ghost, were imbued with illusions and all the Jewish prejudices. In their eyes, Jerusalem was the whole universe, and its ruin meant, for them, the collapse of the world. As a result of this narrow, exaggerated patriotism which dominated them, the apostles continued in their vigilant and unceasing anticipation until the ruin of Jerusalem. Such were the dispositions which Christ endeavored to arouse, seeking to instruct them and lead them away from gross earthly hopes, rather than excite their curiosity by disclosing to them the hidden secrets of the future. Hence in his prophecy he shows them, as it were, two perspectives and two horizons, having analogous features and alike in relief, pattern, and coloring. In St. Matthew and St. Mark, the two events, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world, seem rather to be merged. In St. Luke, the two occurrences are very clearly distinguished. There are features which refer solely to the end of the world, such as these. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, by reason of the confusion of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, men withering away for fear and expectation of what shall come upon the whole world. For the powers of heaven shall be moved, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and majesty. Matthew 24, 8 Will the world last another hundred years? Will it end with our present millennium? Will mankind, under this Christian law of grace, go through a span of years corresponding to the period passed under the law of nature or the Mosaic law? These are questions upon which no hypothesis or conjecture may be ventured. All the calculations and inquiries in which learned interpreters have indulged are idle quests, lacking any purpose other than the satisfaction of vain curiosity. Providence has ordained that this day should not be known, and that nobody shall succeed in discovering it until it actually arrives. De die illa nemoshit. Of that day no one knows. Matthew 24:36. And let no one object that, if we cannot assign the day, we can at least determine the period or the year. No, for St. Augustine remarks that the word day in Holy Scripture is to be understood in the sense of any length of time. The testimony of the Holy Doctor concurs with that of the prophet Malachi, who tells us, Ece venit digi dominus exercitium, et quis poterit cogitare diem adventus eius. 
Behold, it comes, says the Lord of armies, and who will be able to know the day of his coming? Malachi 3, 1. Zacharias is still more precise and explicit. Et erit in die illa, non erit lux, sed frigus et gelu, et erit dies una, que nota est domino, non dies neque nox, et in tempore vesperi erit lux. And it shall come to pass in that day, that there shall be no light, but cold and frost. And there shall be one day which is known to the Lord, not day nor night, and in the time of the evening there shall be light. Zechariah 14, 6 and 7. The reason is that the end of the world will not simply be the effect of some natural cause, but depends above all on the will of God, which has not been revealed to us. It is of faith that human destinies will be brought to a close when the measure of saints shall have been filled up, and the number of the elect consummated. Now no man, whether from reasons which are certain, or even on the strength of probable conjecture, can know the number of the predestinate, still less the time which will elapse before this number is complete. Who, for example, would dare to assert whether more or fewer men will be saved in the centuries to come than were saved in the preceding centuries? And irrespective of whether the number of future saints is greater or less than the number of past saints, how is it possible to predict the length of time in which their number will be consummated? Is it not an established fact in the life of the church that there are periods of sterility when saints are rare, and periods of fecundity when they abound? That is why, considering the original cause of the world, which is none other than the hidden mystery of predestination, no one can conclude whether the end of the world is near or distant. However, if Christ teaches us that this final great day is a secret which God, in the designs of his sovereignty, has kept to himself, tempora et momenta que pater posuit in sua potestate, times and moments which the Father has placed in his power, and which will defy all our calculations until the very hour of its fulfillment, Nevertheless, in order to forearm us against negligence and a false sense of security, he unceasingly reminds men, first, that the end of the world is certain, secondly, that it is relatively proximate, thirdly, that it will not occur until there have come to pass not ordinary habitual signs such as have happened at all times, but the particular distinctive signs which he has clearly indicated to us. These signs are not just calamities and revolutions in the stars, but events of a public character, pertaining to both the religious and the social order, which mankind cannot fail to perceive. 2. The first of the events foreshadowing the end of the times is the one to which the Savior refers in Matthew 24 when he says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony to all nations, and then shall the consummation come. The second of these signs will be the appearance of the man of sin, the Antichrist. The third, the conversion of the Jewish people, who will adore the Lord Jesus and recognize him as the promised Messiah. Until then, says St. Paul, let no man deceive you by any means, as if the day of the Lord were at hand. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2. It is evident that the last two events which St. Paul declares are to mark the approach of the Great Tribulation have not so far been fulfilled. Antichrist has not yet appeared, as we shall show in the next discourse. The Jews as a nation have not yet cast off the thick veil which prevents them from acclaiming as God him whom they crucified. It remains to be ascertained whether at the present time the gospel has been preached all over the earth and given for a testimony to the totality of nations. On this point the fathers and doctors are divided. Some say that the words of Christ are to be interpreted morally and should be understood in the sense of a partial summary preaching. For them to be fulfilled, it is enough that missionaries should have enlightened a certain number of individual minds in the various parts of the inhabited earth, and that on each deserted and remote hillside the cross should have been raised at least once. Others, more numerous, like St. Jerome and Bede, insist that the words of the Son of God should be understood in the strictest and most literal sense. 
Cornelius a Lapide, the most learned of the interpreters of the sacred books, expresses the opinion that the end of the times will not come until Christianity has been not only proclaimed and propagated, but established and organized, and has subsisted at the level of a public institution, among men of every race and nationality, in such a way that before the centuries have run their course, there will not be a single barbarian shore, not one island lost in the ocean or any place at present unknown in the two hemispheres, where the gospel has not shone in all its splendor where the church has not made herself manifest in her legislation, her solemnities and hierarchy, including the bishops and lower clergy. In a word, where the great prophecy, there will be one fold and one shepherd, has not been completely fulfilled. We incline to this latter opinion. It is more in harmony with the testimony of Holy Scripture. It is more in accord with the wisdom and mercy of God, who makes no distinction between the civilized and the barbarian, Greeks and Jews, but, desiring the salvation of all men, does not exclude any of them from the light and gift of the redemption. Finally, it accords better with the ways of providence, which shows an equal solicitude for all peoples, and calls them in turn to the knowledge of its law, in the time appointed by its immutable decrees. One need only glance at a map to recognize that the gospel law is far from having been promulgated to all peoples, and that innumerable multitudes at the present time remain sunk in darkness, and do not possess the slightest shadow of revealed truth. Thus, Central Asia and the mountains of Tibet have so far defied the endeavors of our most intrepid missionaries. No one has yet been able to give us an exact account of the social and religious customs of the peoples of equatorial Africa, in spite of the recent discovery of great lakes and high tableland, where, formerly, there was held to be nothing but sand and desert. Britain and other nations have established colonial outposts on the shores of the South Sea Islands, but the interior of these vast continents has yet to be explored. Clearly the gospel has not yet been preached as a testimony to all nations. Can we even say that it has been preached with sufficient luster, and in such a way as to leave with no excuse those who, over the greater part of the earth, in all the provinces of India and China, and in most of the archipelagos, have refused to obey it? What would be the effect of twenty, a hundred, or, if you wish, a thousand priests, in evangelizing a country like France, in planting knowledge of our divine mysteries, and stirring up the fire of charity? China alone, in view of its immense population, is far removed from the comparison we have just made. Among the 340 million inhabitants of this vast empire, the greater number either have never heard of our religion, or have only a vague, incomplete idea of it. They live and die without ever having met a priest. Africa, leaving aside the northern provinces, numbers only five or six mission stations, long coasts extending more than 2,000 leagues. On each page of the annals of propaganda, we find this sorrowful strain, welling up from the hearts of apostles, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he send laborers into his harvest. Luke 10.2 now it is written that, at the end of the times, the gospel will have been given as a testimony to all the nations. David cries out, All the ends of the earth shall remember, and shall be converted to the Lord, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he shall have dominion over the nations. Psalm 21, 29. Further on, David continues, And he shall rule from sea to sea, from the river unto the ends of the earth. Before him the Ethiopians shall fall down, the kings of the Arabians and of Saba shall bring gifts. Psalm 71, 8-10. The Lord then speaks through Isaiah to the church, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and stretch out the skins of thy tabernacles. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt pass on to the right hand and to the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and shall inherit the desolate cities. Isaiah 54, 2-4 These texts are explicit and precise. It is clear from their testimony that there will come a time when all heresies and schisms will be overcome, and the true religion known and practiced by everyone, in all places illuminated by the sun. This unity will assuredly not be achieved easily. Mankind will not reach this golden age along paths strewn with roses. The foundations of the church were built up with the blood of martyrs, mingled with the sweat of the apostles. So we must expect strife and bitter resistance. Blood will be shed. The spirit of darkness will once more throw up its seductions and wiles in abundance. 
we may count on there being more terrible persecutions of the church than those which she has sustained hitherto. On the other hand, we must learn to scrutinize the thoughts of God, and to read from the decrees of His power. All the admirable inventions of modern times have their divinely appointed end. Would God in our days have given man a glimpse of the secrets and hidden treasures of creation? Would He have put into His hands all those marvelous instruments such as steam, magnetism, electricity, for the sole purpose of providing a new spur to His pride, of being the docile slaves of His selfishness and greed? Such was not the thought which he expressed by the voice of the prophet when he said, I will give wings to my word, harness fire to my chariots, seize my apostles as if in a whirlwind, and transport them in the twinkling of an eye amidst the barbarian nations. Thus the time is near when Christ will gain complete triumph, when in very truth he can be called Lord of the earth, Deus omnis terre vocabitur. Isaiah 34, 5. At present, many signs point to a great victory for Christianity. Do not our enemies have a presentiment of it? Does not a secret instinct warn them that the days of their power are numbered, and that the time when it is given to them to prevail cannot be of long duration? That is why, in their impatience to throw off the mask from every hypocrisy in the evil war they are waging against the Church, they resort to all kinds of malevolent depravity, and every hostile art of shady, atheistic politics. The revolution boldly raises its standard against religion, property, and the family, saps the foundation of the social structure, and mounts its attacks against us simultaneously on every front. The press, freed from every restraint, disseminates the most subversive doctrines and the deadliest poisons in a thousand organs. The venerable throne of the Holy See, attacked with satanic audacity, depicted as a center of ignorance and obscurantism, as a blot on the splendors of our civilization, has finally succumbed before this mass of concerted efforts. It has collapsed utterly, so that, humanly speaking, it is impossible to entertain any hope of its being able soon to rise again. We can understand that, in such a situation, the mighty should feel irresolute in their counsels, and their courage and constancy seem to falter. We can understand that, beyond the clouds and troubled horizons, they discern somber prospects and predict a renewed outbreak of crime, wars, and frightful upheavals. Yet it is precisely the incredible audacity and the continually renascent fury of our enemies which gives us hope of a glorious new era for the Church. Christianity in our days is being attacked everywhere, in the arts and sciences, in church and state, in Europe as well as Asia, in the old and new world, a sure sign that it will triumph everywhere. When will this be? God knows, but the fact is certain. The blood of martyrs becomes the seed of Christians. The church has immutable promises. As she comes out of the Red Sea, she enters the promised land. The hour of darkness gives way to that of light and triumph. Following the outrages of Golgotha, she hears resounding around her the blessings and hosanna of the deliverance. So let us not lose heart. Let us rejoice at what the future holds. And if, at the present time, our country is a prey to convulsions and torn by discord, if her fortune and political influence have become a prize, fought over by unsatisfied ambitions and vulgar non-entities, like the prodigal son of the gospel, it will not be long before the memory of the peace and honor of the centuries of her youth return to her mind. She will cast off her chains in the mask of her ignominy. And once again there will be brilliant pages to be written, in the book which bears the title Gesta Dei per Francos, The Deeds of God Through the French. Yet even if the end of the world were to be deferred for many centuries, what are centuries compared to the years of eternity? A second, an instant, more fleeting than lightning. When the Son of God was raised up to heaven, seated upon a cloud, the apostles could not take their eyes from the place in the sky where he had vanished. Suddenly two angels in white garments appeared to them and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you looking up to heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven shall so come as you have seen him going into heaven. Acts 1, 10 and 11. Elsewhere Christ says, a little while, and now you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. John 16:16. 16, 16. Nevertheless, although Christ intended to leave us in ignorance concerning the exact time of the end of the world, 
he deemed it fitting to give us detailed information on the manner and circumstances of this great event. The end of the world, he says, will happen instantaneously and unexpectedly. Veniet dies domini sicut fur. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come at a time when the human race, sunk in the uttermost depths of indifference, will be far from thinking about punishment and justice. Divine mercy will have exhausted all its resources and means of action. Antichrist will have appeared. Men over the whole surface of the earth will have been called to the knowledge of the truth. The Catholic Church will have blossomed out into the fullness of her life and fecundity for the last time. Nevertheless, all these superabundant favors and prodigies will, once more, vanish from the hearts and memory of man. By a criminal abuse of graces, mankind will have returned to its vomit. Concentrating their affections and all their aspirations on the goods and gross pleasures of this world, they will, as the sacred books tell us, have so far turned their backs on God as to be unable to look up to heaven and remember its just judgments. Daniel 13.9 All faith will be extinguished in hearts. All flesh will have corrupted its ways. Divine providence will judge that it is beyond remedy. As Christ says, it will be as in the days of Noah. Matthew 24.37 At that time, men lived without a care, made plantations, built luxurious houses, poked fun at the old fellow Noah as he set himself up as a carpenter and worked day and night building his ark. Madman, dreamer, they would say. This went on until the day when the flood came and destroyed them all. Luke 17.27 Thus the final catastrophe will take place when the world is at its most secure. Civilization will be at its zenith. Markets will be overflowing with money and government stocks will never have been higher. There will be national celebrations, great exhibitions, and mankind, wallowing in an unprecedented material prosperity, will have ceased to hope for heaven. Crudely attached to the basest pleasures of life, men, like the miser in the gospel, will say, my soul, you will possess your goods for many a long year. Eat, drink, and be merry. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, in Medianocte, for it will be amidst the darkness and at that fateful midnight hour when the Lord once appeared in his lowliness that he will appear again. Men, startled out of their sleep, will hear a great clamor and noise, and a voice will be heard saying, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye forth and meet him. Ecce sponsus venit, exite obvia mei. Matthew 25, 6. In the annals of Savoy, the memory and tradition is preserved of an appalling catastrophe which presents us the image and outline of what will happen when God abandons the human race and his patience is finally exhausted. It was 700 years ago, on 24th November, 1248, the eve of the day when the church celebrates the Feast of St. Catherine. That evening the season was mild, the air calm, and the stars twinkled in the sky. The whole valley where the present town of Chambury is situated lay quiet and secure. An evil, irreligious man then ruled tyrannically over a town, now gone forever, but which at that time stood next to the city of my story. This man had gathered together a large number of merry companions. He was celebrating, with banquets and drunken revelry, the sacrilegious plunder of a monastery which he had turned to profane use, after mercilessly expelling the monks and holy inmates who were the legitimate owners. Probably, as in Balthazar's time, it was a sumptuous meal, and the wine and liqueurs, mingled with blasphemies and sardonic laughter, flowed in abundance. Suddenly, in an instant, in the middle of the night, the earth was shaken by a tremendous shock. Sky and ground seemed to be shaken by horrible whirlwinds, voices, and howling of storms, which you would have thought came from the cavern of hell. And before the guests could rise to their feet, before they could utter a cry for help, they were buried alive beneath the collapsing mass of a gigantic mountain. One town, five hamlets, a whole region of six thousand inhabitants were engulfed in chasms, the traces of which are written in indelible characters on the fragments of our souls and remain as an ineffaceable and living memory of mingled legend and horror in the minds of our people. This image, borrowed from one of the most memorable and dreadful events that have occurred in our history, is, in one sense, more vivid and striking than that of Noah and the Flood. 
for at least at the time of Noah and the flood, men had time to collect their thoughts and to obtain the grace of repentance before they perished, and the disaster struck only gradually. If all did not succeed in saving themselves for the present life, St. Peter tells us explicitly that the greater number returned to God and saved themselves for the life to come. In his first epistle, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, he says that when the holy soul of Jesus Christ had been separated from his body, he preached to those spirits that were in prison, which had been for some time incredulous when they waited for the patience of God in the days of Noah. On the day of judgment, however, it will be as at the abyss of Mayan and the foot of the hill of St. André. It will all happen with unparalleled promptness and violence. Christ tells us, He that is on the housetop, let him not come down to take anything out of his house. And he that is in the field, let him not go back to take his coat. And woe to them that are with child, and that give suck in those days. Then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, do not believe him. For as lightning cometh out of the east, and appeareth even into the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24, 17, 18, and 27. By what means will this great destruction take place? What will be the efficient cause, the principal agent, the direct, immediate instrument? Holy Scripture did not intend to omit any of the circumstances concerning this event, the gravest and most decisive of all that have succeeded one another since the creation. It teaches that the world will not perish by inundation as at the flood, will not collapse by virtue of an earthquake, and will not be buried under ashes and lava, as were Herculaneum and Pompeii in the reign of Titus, but will be set ablaze and destroyed by fire. Such was already the ancient belief, common among the Egyptians and the Persian philosophers. Cicero said that the world would end by fire. The remarkable thing is that present-day science concurs with the sacred books in showing that fire will be the great architect of God's justice and of the renovation which will follow when this has been manifested. Thus science, like the Bible, has revealed that fire was the first created force to have developed its energy and displayed its activity. It was by fire that nature was made fruitful and the elements set to work. Thence came also the great transformations of the primitive world, the erection of mountains, the making of the stars, and, finally, the emergence of the universe, with all the order and variety which it presents to our admiring gaze. Genesis 1-2 says, The earth was void and empty, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In other words, as the experts and commentators explain, matter was volatilized and in the state of vapor. Before the Creator had bestowed its properties in diverse forms by dividing and coordinating it in the six days' labor, all these constituents were jumbled, disunited, and in a chaotic state. Earth, sun, and stars presented a picture of a vast, liquescent or gaseous sea scattered around the immensity of space. This sea was motionless and inert. It bubbled on its surface and in its innermost depths, and was set in motion under the quickening breath of an eternal, all-powerful agent, which was none other than the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit subjected the material substance to a sort of incubation. Under the action and by the effects of this sovereign heat of immeasurable intensity, the elements underwent a casting and recasting, perfected themselves, acquired their power and energy, shed their dross like gold, which is refined and separated from its rust in the crucible where it is cast. When thus transformed by the blast of this furnace of the Holy Spirit, they were rendered capable of hearing the word of God, the Creator called them in turn and said, Be light made, and light was made. And, after he had made night and day and laid out the sky, he separated the solid matter from the vaporous mass surrounding it, and said, Let the dry land appear, and the land was consolidated. He spoke also to the waters, leaving on our globe out of the liquid part only what was necessary to irrigate it and fill the basins of the seas, and sent away the remainder, in the state of vapor or ether, to fill the vast expanses above all the spheres and skies. It was a grand, sublime scene which would give rise to long and magnificent developments. Who would not feel his spirits rise and his heart quiver at the sight of the creative act, that masterpiece of divine wisdom and power, throwing up streams of light and beauty from the shapeless shadowy ocean, 
implanting movement and action in all the inert beings which the Divine Spirit had invested with his character, penetrating them with his fire and radiance. Today, however, we cannot speak of these admirable works except in passing, and insofar as they bear upon our chosen subject. Now this same Spirit of God, who has strewn treasures of harmony and perfection throughout the universe, will proceed in the same way when it comes to ordaining new heavens and building that palace which shall serve eternally as a dwelling place for glorified men. Here we are not indulging our imagination, and our voice is not our own, but that of all the prophets who have spoken, and of all the evangelists who have written. A fire shall go before him, and shall burn his enemies round about. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. Psalm 96, 3 Under the effect of its brilliance, the sun will darken, and the moon will no longer give its light, and the stars will fall. That is, having been dissolved for the second time, they will vanish like droplets in the air. That fire will be the one which will devour the wicked like straw, penetrate their bones to the marrow, and consume them forever. It will be the final trial for the just who will be living in the last days. For them it will take the place of purgatory, the cleansing flames of which, at the moment of the resurrection, will be extinguished, never to be lit up again. It will be the crucible wherein they will cast off the remains of their earthly rust, so that no stain may darken the whiteness of their garments when they appear before the throne of God. We may be quite certain that all these events will be accomplished. They are certain with absolute certitude, as God is himself, as is his spirit of truth, which is not subject to any error or change. As a matter of fact, we can state that every one of us here will have left this lower world before being witnesses of this great scene of desolation and ruin. Nonetheless, Jesus Christ has judged it fitting that we should be instructed concerning it, because these great truths are not of a speculative order, but are intended to bring about practical and immediate effects in the conduct of our lives. In truth, if the earth and all it contains must one day disappear by fire, the goods of this world are no more to be esteemed than wood and straw. What point is there, then, in making them the object of our desires and cares? Why seek to build and leave marks of our genius and power where we have no permanent abode, and where the form of this world will be removed like a tent which has no travelers to shelter? It may be said that it will be a thousand years before this threatening cataclysm takes place, but Christ has said that a thousand years are but an instant compared with eternity, and when the moment comes when, from the land of the future life, we are the witnesses and actors in that supreme drama, the whole span of humanity will seem so short to us that we shall scarcely consider it to have lasted a single day. The great prophet, St. Paul, for whom time had no bounds and space no size, believed that he had already been transported there. In his cave at Bethlehem, St. Jerome could hear the trumpet of doom awakening the dead, and his hair stood on end out of fear, and his flesh and bones quivered with an indescribable shudder. Lastly, Christ tells us to meditate upon these great teachings, for it is certain that we shall be taken by surprise, and that the time will come sooner than we think. At the end of the 14th century, an extraordinary personage appeared from the depths of Spain. His name was Vincent Ferrer. A prophet and wonder-worker since his youth, he grew up amidst universal astonishment. The Spirit of God lay upon him, took possession of his heart, and inflamed him with a zeal unknown since St. Paul. It ruled his body, which he sustained, despite his extreme weakness, amidst the most crushing labors and the harshest austerities. The power to work miracles was granted him. In short, he uttered the most prodigiously powerful words that mankind had ever heard since St. Paul. A superhuman being, although he was a man, he constantly refused the honors which the Pope urged him to accept. His life was one of continuous prayer, fasting, and preaching. For twenty years he traveled through Europe, and for twenty years Europe trembled beneath the ardor and fire of his inspired voice. The Last Judgment was the favorite subject of his preaching. He himself declared to all that he had been specially sent by the Sovereign Judge to proclaim the approach of the last days. One day at Salamanca, a city renowned for its theologians and scholars, a countless throng crowded round to hear the messenger from heaven. 
Suddenly, raising his voice in the middle of the multitude, he said, I am the angel of the apocalypse whom St. John saw flying through the midst of heaven, crying aloud, Ye nations, fear the Lord and render him glory, for the day of judgment is near. At these strange words, an indescribable murmur broke out amidst the assembly. There were shouts of madness, bragging, impiety. The messenger of God paused, gazing at the sky in a kind of rapture or ecstasy. Then he continued, and raising his voice, cried out again, I am the angel of the apocalypse, the angel of the judgment. The agitation and murmuring reached its height. Calm yourselves, said the saint. Do not take scandal at my words. You will see with your own eyes that I am what I say. Go to the gate of St. Paul at the end of the city, and you will find a dead woman. Bring her to me, and I shall raise her to life, as proof of what St. John said of me. Once more, shouts and an even greater protest greeted this proposal. Nevertheless, a few men decided to go to the gate indicated. There they did indeed find a dead woman, took her up, and laid her amidst the assembly. The apostle, who did not for a moment leave the elevated spot from which he was preaching, said, Woman, in the name of God, I command you to rise. The dead woman immediately rose, wrapped in her shroud, cast off the winding sheet that covered her face, and showed herself full of life in the middle of the assembly. Vincent then added, For the honor of God and the salvation of all these people, say, now that you can speak, whether I really am the angel of the apocalypse, entrusted with proclaiming to all the approach of the last judgment. You are that angel, replied the woman. Truly you are. In order to place this marvelous testimony between two miracles, the saint spoke to her again. Do you prefer to remain alive, or do you wish to die once more? I should willingly live, said the woman. Live then. In fact, she lived many years longer, a living witness, says one historian, of an astounding prodigy, and of the highest mission ever entrusted to man. We shall not discuss the authenticity of this story. It has raised doubts among certain hagiographers, and the circumstances surrounding it have given rise to criticism and debate. In defense of our opinion, it suffices to state that the Church has not pronounced it apocryphal, since, in the bull of canonization of the saint, it is said, He had the words of the eternal gospel to proclaim as the angel flying through the midst of heaven the kingdom of God to every tongue, tribe, and nation, and to show the proximity of the last judgment. However, it is nearly five hundred years since this event happened, and the last judgment announced by the wonder worker of the fourteenth century has not taken place. Are we to conclude that the saint was misled, and that the miracle of this resurrection, attested by serious trustworthy witnesses, recalled and handed down in sculpture and painting, must be assigned to the realm of legend, and held to be an allegory, a mere invention? St. Vincent Ferrer spoke in the same way as holy doctors had done before him, and as the majority of great apostolic men have done after him. Thus, as a matter of fact, St. Jerome censured a certain Judah, the famous author of an ecclesiastical history, for having asserted that the violence of the persecution portended the end of the world, which would occur in a short time. Yet the same St. Jerome, in one of his letters, brilliantly depicting the calamities and disasters which he had witnessed, himself expressed almost the same opinion. St. Cyprian wrote these words, You must be convinced and hold for certain that the day of the final desolation has begun to dawn upon you, and that the time of Antichrist is near. In the panegyric of his brother Satyrus, St. Ambrose exclaims, He was removed from life that he might not be a witness of the end of the world and the complete destruction of the universe. St. Gregory the Great and St. Bernard have expressed the same sentiments in their books and discourses. These illustrious doctors and great saints spoke in this way, either because they saw faith becoming scarce and the calamities of their age increasing every day in alarming proportions, or because they were gripped by fear at the thought of that great day and wanted to plant that salutary fear in men who had gone astray in order to bring them back to the knowledge of God and good living. Yet we cannot say that they strayed from the truth. They spoke in accordance with Scripture, which, by emphasizing this fundamental truth, unceasingly shows the prospect of the advent of the divine judge as imminent. In this, the apostles and inspired writers have not deceived us, inasmuch as time is nothing to those who have crossed over the frontiers of earthly life. 
The whole span of the centuries, says the Holy Spirit, is no more than the fleeting day. Just as in the firmament there are stars separated by myriads of miles which, on account of their distance, appear to merge so as to form one single point when observed from this earth. In the same way, from the heights of the life of God, where we shall one day be immersed, time will be such as if it did not exist. A year, a hundred thousand years, millions of years, contemplated from the bosom of eternity, will not seem to us any more than mere points. We shall consider these lengths of time as so microscopic, so fractional, that, in a sense, there will not be any difference between them which our mind can discern. Consequently, these words of St. John the Evangelist may with perfect truthfulness be applied to the general resurrection, as well as to the partial resurrections performed by Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, I say unto you, that the hour cometh, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. John 5.27 Moreover, our eternal destiny will be settled irrevocably at death, and the particular judgment which must follow will soon determine the circumstances in which we shall appear at the tribunal of divine justice, and the place which will there be assigned to us. Compared with this inevitable ending of human destinies, our political controversies are nothing but idle noise. Revolutions which cause the disappearance of peoples and bring down republics and empires are less than a change of scene or decoration in the theater. All those colossal enterprises and marvelous works to which men devote their minds and which they bring to perfection at the cost of the greatest sacrifices and the most hazardous efforts appear like a mere wisp of smoke and are more fragile works than the web spun by a spider and most often last less than a day. There will then be no other distinction between men than that of merit and virtue. All vain and ambitious thoughts will have vanished. Politics will have ceased. Science itself will be destroyed. Happy those who have heard the divine word and kept it faithfully in their hearts. Happy those who, awakening from their sleep, shall have walked honestly and openly, following the apostles' recommendation. Happy those who, like the wise virgins, shall have carefully conserved the oil of their lamp and formed their sheaf for the day of the dazzling solemn harvest. These shall be called the predestinate, because, as St. John says, their names are written in the book of life of the Lamb which was slain from the beginning of the world. May that destiny be ours. Amen. <laughs>